it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. This is Lighthouse Faith Podcast, Moving Forward in Truth and Love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book, Lighthouse Faith. So how do you find God? There are three major milestones in life that we're going to talk about today. Uh, The first is birth, second is death, and the third is marriage. Each of them are landmarks on our journey through life, and each one, God has given us insights and knowledge through which we can know him. And knowing God is like in the J.I. Packer book, uh, wrote in his book, which is of the same name, Knowing God. Knowing God is the most important decision anyone can make. It's the most important thing that we can do in life. I firmly believe this, and I wrote about that in my book, Lighthouse Faith. Um, And I was strongly influenced to read that book from our guests today. And I'm going to bring them in just a second. But... um, it's the most important decision you can make, and it's and it's through these three life-altering and life-affirming events that God is not only present, but has given us guidance as they are where we experience our greatest happiness and our deepest grief. That is a quote from the media release on the books we're going to talk about. It's in the How to Find God series. It's written by Dr. Timothy Keller and um, his wife, Kathy Keller, and they've written three small books one each on birth, marriage, and death. I mean, these are really small handbooks. They really kind of fit in your back pocket. Um, but they contain an incredible amount of information. Um, and each one explains why, quote, it is profoundly important to understand how to approach and experience these occasions with grace, endurance, and joy. Uh, Dr. Timothy Keller, many people know who he is. He is the founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York um, that started with about 25 people and rose to about, I don't know, five or 6,000 people. Um, and Kathy Keller is his wife. Um, I always, Kathy, I always kind of feel like I'm giving you a short shrift here, but it's it's noble to be a wife. It's not, but I've been saying, okay, Tim's done all this and here's his wife, Kathy. Um, I know you don't feel that way, but it just feels like I'm saying that. Um, so not at all. Not at all. Okay, good. No, um, no. I, there's there's plenty to do as uh, the support. When we planted the church, Tim preached, and I was the whole staff. So I was actually busier than he was in some <laughs> ways when we first got started. So, and he, he credits you with being a lot smarter than him, which is uh, which is which is a great compliment, actually. No, no, no. Um, Tim, I want to I want to. Um, Kind of start with you in the sense that you know why why these handbooks on these three major areas in life. Well, I, I'll tell you why the handbooks. So, if you actually ask the question, "How did you go about uh, deciding to write these books?" You should ask Kathy because that's it starts with the with the funeral of her sister. However, uh, I teach pastoral um, work now. I, in other words, I'm no longer uh, the senior pastor of Redeemer, and so I teach. Uh, church leaders and younger people who are preparing for ministry. And pastoral work means uh, there are transitions where people go through um, suffering, of course, is a a major transition. But the three that everybody gets to is, generally speaking, you at some point you face death, not only your own, but the death of a loved one. At many, many places you get married. 
And very often, if you get married, you also uh, have children. And when you're starting a family, when you get married, when you're facing uh, critical illness and death of some uh, of you know your parents, the death of a loved one, maybe your own death, these are key times in which you suddenly are jolted out of uh, the uh, the kind of uh, obliviousness to the big questions of life that daily life can create in you. That uh, we're just so busy doing things, we never sit back and say, "What am I living for?" and "What is it all about?" And why are we even here? You never ask those questions. You're too busy, especially in New York. But times like that, you it forces you to think uh, about it. And that's these books are, in a sense, pastoral books. They're books written mm-hmm. to people who are going through those transitions to try to help them at that moment think you know, on all the wider scale of what you're really here for. You know, Kathy, you, I was reading the introduction on the on the on the death book, and it is because of your sister. Um, your sister's death, that you wanted us, you wanted to write this book dedicated to her. What is it about death that sort of brings us face-to-face with not just our mortality, but just what our lives are about? I think it's uh, one of the poets said, uh, death concentrates the mind wonderfully. Uh, When you are actually at a funeral, in fact, Tim uh, said this at my sister's funeral, when you're at a funeral and you are in the literal presence of death, you can't help but think about the fact that one day that's going to be you. I mean, uh, C.S. Lewis is reputed to have said that every plague and every war, no plague and no war has ever raised the death toll. It's always been one to a customer. And um, that's inarguably true. So... The fact that when you have stripped away all of our defenses, all the ways in which we hide this from ourselves, all the way in which we uh, prevent ourselves from thinking about the fact that our days are numbered and they will come to an end, when you actually have to think about it, then it's a, it's a traumatic event. And it, it's at times of trauma, times of transition, when your categories have been shaken up and you're uncertain and unsettled, that you're willing to listen to new ideas. And that's why it makes it so important to think about how do you find God um, when death is present or even when you're you know, embarking on a marriage or embarking on raising children. Um, yeah. When I brought my first child home from the hospital, I lay on the bed and wept and said, Oh my dear, oh my dear! Now you're going to have to die someday. I mean, it was it was a uh, a moment of existential horror that I had brought someone into the world who was one day going to have to die. It was probably partly the hormones talking. <laughs> That's kind of we don't like to think about it this this time. And I should actually add at this point that I had my plan to start on birth and marriage, much more happy happy things. But I think we've we've actually naturally kind of grafted to. Uh, um, over to death um, as the first thing because it is the great equalizer. Uh, Tim, you were in the book. Um, it's you call it like the great interruption, the great schism. You know, ripping soul from body, the great insult, like the Shakespeare words that we are we are worm food. Um, tell me about why um, our sort of our relationship with death, and, and it's it's kind of odd, isn't it? Yes, and by the way, though that particular, those particular um, descriptors of death, I got from Kathy. Well, there you go. You see, the, the book is well. See, the interestingly, the book is um, all three books. I wrote most of what's in the books, but in in Kathy and I have been through all these together. We've yeah. been, you know, we face death. We 
Um, uh, but I've had cancer. Kathy's had some very serious issues. We've been married. We've raised our children. And so in some ways, these books are not only um, the uh, the advice that we have given other people over the years, 45 years of pastoral ministry, but also the advice we actually give ourselves. Death itself is, um, it was Samuel Johnson who said, it concentrates the mind wonderfully. And oh, it actually it actually is a... Um, uh, George George Herbert has some place. He was a 17th century British uh, Anglican poet who said, uh, for, "Death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener." And mm-hmm. what it means by that is, for a Christian who's able to hold on to his assurance or her assurance of salvation, and know that even the worst thing that can happen, death, would only do will only make you happier only make you a more blindingly brilliant, loving thing, you know, person. Um, that means that death in some ways is a friend. Uh, he's an enemy. Of course, the last enemy, Paul says he's an enemy, of course. God didn't create us for death. He didn't create us for this. On the other hand, the gospel makes death into something that only actually drives you closer to God, gets things in perspective, um, and even perhaps, hopes, hopefully, Reminds you that there's some there's a there's a world beyond this world in which all the things that we really want in this world we, we can't have, it's there. So in some ways, death is like a companion, mm-hmm. and I love the idea that he's a gardener rather than executioner for a Christian. There is this, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Happy. I was just going to say it's one of God's great judo moves. <laughs> Take um, something that was meant uh, for our harm and our destruction and actually use it to turn our thoughts towards him. If we were just happy and healthy and never thought a thing about um, death or decay or disease, any of that, and then suddenly we just didn't wake up one morning, um, that would be a dreadful thing because you would never think of any reality other than your morning coffee, your newspaper, your job, your family, anything bigger than that. So it's been a great, it's a, it's a great judo move in the way God often takes things that are meant for harm or evil or bad in our lives and flips them so that they bring us closer to Him. Okay, hold that thought. We're going to take a little break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. Okay, welcome back to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Well, one of the things, too, that I remember hearing you say, um, Tim, and I'm sure uh, I've heard it from other um, great theological minds as well, is that it's death is something that happens to us all, and yet we respond to it as if it should not happen. You know, the the incredible grief, um, the despair, all of the pain and suffering. Say it's a way we react to it as if it's saying it should not happen. Right. At the the bottom most level, that's fair. Because as a Christian, we don't believe God invented us, didn't create us to die. Death is a result of our sin, our turning away from him. And so there's a part of us down deep that says, you know, I wasn't meant for this. And the answer is, that's right. But at, the, at another level, it's really unrealistic. And there is a denial. In other words, we don't want to, we, we want to be able to live as if we're never going to die. And if you do that, then what Kathy was just saying, if you do that, that's the worst thing for you spiritually. You kind of lose yourself in pleasure and in making money and running around and you just don't ask the bigger questions about why what why you're here. So at the at the top level you might say the fact that we don't want to even think about death is very very bad for us. At the bottom level the the anger about death and the, the rejection of 
death is is true. And I don't like the books that come out and they say, hey, there's nothing to worry about. Death is fine. When you die, you're just no longer there. And there's a whole lot of books in the last 10 years that have said, there's no reason to be afraid of death. That's just not true. Mm. Because death takes you away from everything that matters to you, all your loved ones. It takes you away from everything. If there's nothing on the other side of death, you ought to be extraordinarily afraid of it. So the denial isn't a good thing. I really wish people would realize they're going to die so they can come to grips with whether or not um, you know, they really are, are right with God. I want to get to the, the coronavirus because uh, talking about this because death has to be on people's minds as they fear this coronavirus and what they don't know. Um, as a you know, there's a pastor, how would you approach this um, telling your congregation about fearing the coronavirus and all the unknowns that it presents? Well, Kathy and I are talking about it every day with people, but yeah. I'll, I'll be short and then Kathy can jump in. Um, I think what you have to say, of course, is that human life is precious and therefore it's wrong to be reckless. We're stewards of our bodies. Um, you know, in a sense, God has given us our bodies. We, we belong to him and therefore we really can't be reckless with them. Um, on the other hand, we also have to recognize that God is in charge and he is sovereign and he knows the days, you know, our, our days are recorded. The number of days we're supposed to live is recorded and we're not going to live one day longer or shorter than we ought to. So this that's the balance. Kathy, what would you be saying? Well, I think part of this, um, the panic that we're seeing, and, and gosh, I've just finished talking to a friend in London, the worldwide panic that we're seeing is because people have made an idol out of controlling all the factors in their lives so that they can eliminate any potential for risk or illness or disease. And this is just breaking through all of their controls. You know, there's there's no mm-hmm. way to guard against it. They, I've heard of people who are just um, walling themselves into their apartments with canned goods and, <laughs> and things and don't plan to come out. You know, if it's six months, if it's a year, they're not coming out. And they've canceled their cleaning services and not getting delivery food. So as part of it is I think we've made an idol, especially in this country, of being able to control the circumstances so nothing bad can get us. Now, I want to ask you. I want to ask you something controversial because I know this is this is the kind of thing that people who maybe not religious would be asking religious people like you. Is something like the coronavirus God's judgment on us, Tim? I thank, thankfully you asked me and not my wife. I want, <laughs> I want to I want to take the hit for here here. No, um, I, I think you barely got it in because I was ready. <laughs> <laughs> no. In general, all the things that are bad—that is, avalanches and earthquakes and um, uh, and pandemics and things like that—as Kathy's already said, it doesn't actually increase the death rate. It's still one per person. Um, however, when you, when it's concentrated, it's just a way I do think for God to try to wake us up and to say, "Please make sure you're right with me. Please uh, think think about you know where you are." So there's a sense in which. All these kinds of disasters are a a judgment, but a judgment that um, not on the people who are suffering. In other words, it's not it's not like the judgment is that he's he's particularly punishing the people who die of a plague more than he's punishing everyone else. Mm -hmm. A a judgment on the human race. Jesus even said that. That's right. He's right. He said if the tower fell on people, were they more sinful than the people the tower that the the people that tower didn't fall on? No. That yeah. was Jesus talking. Yeah, Luke. Thir- I was going to say that Luke thirteen, 
where a tower falls down and kills a bunch of people. And Jesus actually brings that up. It was something that happened recently, and he says, do you think the people on whom that tower fell were worse sinners than the people um, who survived? And he says, no, <laughs> but repentless you likewise perish. And it's, it's a brilliant move. He's really trying to say, when people die in a disaster, that does not mean because God is judging them. What he's actually trying to do is that they're no worse sinners than anybody else. They're, 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 don't, they're worse. But what God is trying to do is trying to get our get attention. And these things do happen. Mm. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Well, let's move on to something a little bit more happy on birth, because birth is something that is celebrated. People celebrate the birth of a child. Um, but you actually talk about two births in your little handbook, the first birth and the second birth or the new birth. So what is this? What is the difference? Uh, I'm going to go with you, um, uh, Tim. Yeah, I'll, just, I'll be brief because you need to ask Kathy, by the way, you have to ask her. <laughs> because she has given birth. <laughs> Now you have to ask her how excited she was when she brought their, our first birth. Well, I've already told her that. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. laid down and wet. But no. Well, the point is that the, the first birth is God, God's gift to us. He gives you new life through creation. He created human beings so that the sexual union of a male and a female can bring about new human life. And, um, and that's just that's a creation order that God put into creation. And so every time a child is born, there is a, it is a kind of miracle, not a, not a literal miracle. It's obviously not against the laws of nature. It's very much in accord with the laws of nature. And yet there is a sense of wonder when, when you actually see the child, the newborn child, and it should feel that way because it is a, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's God's gift through creation. So he gives us new life through creation. That's in the book. But then there's another kind of birth. It's spiritual birth. It's called the new birth. It's called being born again. And Jesus talks about it in John 3. And he says that every human being who wants to have a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ needs to have this spiritual rebirth. It means the Holy Spirit comes into your life when you believe in Christ. And he begins to, he begins to remake you, giving you new identity, giving you more uh, strength to overcome your weaknesses and so forth. And so we actually do need a second birth, and that's God's gift through redemption. So through creation, we get the first birth, and hopefully through redemption, we get the second birth. I want to ask you about something, Kathy, because um, we've had this odd relationship with birth, and as the country and the culture becomes more controversial as it deals with abortion and all of those other things, and one of the things that just struck me in the paper this morning, or uh, that's been kind of in the in the in the news, this um, famous um, musician, I won't name her name, but people can look it up, and she basically called her pregnancy a tragedy because it took her, it, it's, it's, it's a pretty crazy sacrifice, and only um, only half of the population has to do it. She was basically saying she's pregnant, but she's not happy about it. Uh, Kathy, what is your reaction to something like that? Oh, my goodness. I've My reaction... Uh... I am not one of those people that just gets all oozy-goozy over babies. And I had my babies in cold blood. And by that, I mean not because I was so excited about it, but because everywhere the Bible says children are a blessing. And I thought, that's not what I think. I was the oldest of five and pretty much raised my siblings. But 
I thought, well, who am I going to trust, me or God's Word? And pretty much came down to, I better trust God's Word because uh, trusting me has gotten me nowhere in my life. So I had my kids just because God said it was a blessing, and it has turned out to be the most amazing blessing. Of course it has. But um, we saw a magazine when we were in England. I know Tim was thinking about this, too where a woman was saying she could not wait to have an abortion because she felt raped by the fetus invading her body. Oh, my goodness. And I have never, I mean, that, that passes your comment about this, this musician who felt it was a tragedy. This, that, that passes it by a couple of country miles. But for to have women who are rejecting the most wonderful gift that God gave them to be co-creators with him of new life and to think of it as, an evil that is wished on them is is a rejection of all things. I mean, this is supposed to be, isn't today International Women's Day? Yes. This is a rejection of a centra, central meaning of what it means to be a woman and trying to be as much of a man as you can. How much more can you hate your femininity than to reject your your life-giving ability and to say, I reject this and I want to be as much like a man as I can. They don't want life, you know, springing for me. It's inconvenient. But, I mean, what else do you expect from a culture as selfish as ours? It's I want to do what I want to do. And fewer and fewer people are actually having children because all the other relationships, think of every relationship you have in the world, uh, hookups or marriages or anything, you can get rid of it if you try hard enough. But nobody in a culture yet has said that you can divorce your children or abandon them. That's still illegal to just abandon your children. And so people are being really hesitant to have them because once I have this child, I'm pretty much stuck with it for the next umpty ump years. You say 18 years, but oh, let me tell you, it's longer than that. <laughs> it's more than that. You know, you, do, you actually brought up that um, there are basically two reasons why people don't have children. Uh, well, not two reasons. I want to get to the marriage part, but you said this is in a culture that... Um, conceives of liberty and freedom uh, freedom from obligation, conceives of liberty as a freedom from obligation. Parenthood is a dizzying shock. And you're bringing yeah. up that whole idea. This is from Jennifer uh, Jennifer Insinier's book, All the Joy and No Fun. And this is the kind of thing we've, we've run into with this, the culture today is that we, I, can be, I can be totally um, free um, in my decision making and um, all of my life choices, except if I have a child, I am no longer free. Um, I cannot divorce that child. And you know, is that what we're talking about here, Kathy? Oh, absolutely. You can't. Not only can you not divorce it, you can't negotiate at two in the morning, and the, the poor little thing's wailing and hungry and wet and who knows what else. You can't just say, I'm not getting up. You figure it out. I mean, you <laughs> you know, tomorrow night, I, I, I had a bad day today. We, we knew this tomorrow night. You can't negotiate with children. When they melt down, when they're two and three years old, and you're in an elevator and they are just shrieking their heads off. There's nothing you can do. They are just, they're gone. They're gone. Yeah. I would like to and, be able to reason with a two-year-old, but it doesn't really. But it doesn't work. And you, there are things that you do to be a good parent in those situations, but one of them is not negotiate because the needs of the child come before your own um, until a pretty long ways in where they have to uh, recognize that you're a human being as well. But, you know, starting out uh, at the beginning they are totally dependent on you. If you just left a child alone and went away for the weekend, that child would not be alive when you got home. So there's, 
I mean, alone, alone in the apartment. Yeah. You know where the refrigerator is, don't you, Johnny? Well, you know, see you on uh, Sunday night. <laughs> see you on, like my cats wouldn't figure that out either, but they'd figure <laughs> out some way to open that little bag of food. Um, um, I want to get to marriage because I think marriage is pretty much on the minds of a lot of people as the society and the culture starts to sort of redefine it. But um, you were talking about in the book, the one on marriage, it says 25% of millennials may never marry. And two reasons why marriages never begin in this day and age is economic stress and the rise of individualism in the culture. And I want to talk about um, both of those uh, collectively. Uh, Why are those two uh, drivers of people not marrying, Tim? Well, um, the second one, individualism, is uh, is not only um, weakening the institution of marriage, it's weakening all institutions. So um, the idea that we don't trust anybody but ourselves, and we don't want long-term commitments. We want options. Uh, we want to stay in relationships only as long as they, we know they benefit us. And most, even, even with a, uh, a society in which it's extraordinarily easy to get a divorce, mm-hmm. everybody knows that's still an enormous undertaking. Once you're married, divorce is very painful, very difficult. And um, just as Jennifer Senior said, um, all relationships, except parents, you know, relationship between parents and children, all relationships are seen as transactional now. Mm. And yet, marriage is still not quite there. Now, if people know that it's going to be hard once you get in to get out, so a lot of people just aren't getting in. But it's also true, it's the reason why the political parties, it's the reason why um, uh, major institutions of all sorts are having you just don't have loyalty anymore at all. When you when you say transactional, Tim, what exactly do you mean by transactional? It means as opposed to covenantal. <laughs> transactional is uh, as long as I'm uh, benefiting, as long as I'm benefiting, then um, I'll stay in this relationship. But the minute it looks to me like I'm getting, I'm putting more in than I'm getting out, I'm gone. Um, there was there's a there's a a woman I forgot her name already, but we quote her in the book. Is a woman who'd been married for 60 years or something like that. She's a children's uh, fiction writer. Mm-hmm. And they asked her, "How did you? what was the secret of staying together? And she's not a Christian, by the way, but she still said, my, our hus- my husband and I came to realize that marriage was a third thing. It wasn't just me against him. It wasn't just he's winning and I'm losing, I'm winning and he's losing. We both want to basically uh, privilege the, the, the marriage itself as a third thing. And that's a non-transactional view. That's a way of looking and saying, no, it's not me before him, you know, me before her or her before me. It's both of us come second to the marriage. And that's a covenantal view, which, by the way, is in, that is completely countercultural. Nobody thinks like that anymore. What does, what does the Bible say about marriage specifically? Well, a lot of covenant. interesting things. Can I just poke my? Yeah, you, 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 please, 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 because okay, because Kathy, you actually co-wrote the one on marriage. Your name is actually <laughs> on the front of it. The Christian teaching on marriage was utterly revolutionary in its day. I mean, Paul talks in First Corinthians about how um, husband, your wife, your wife, your body doesn't belong to yourself, but to your wife. Wife, your body doesn't belong to to you, but to your husband. Don't uh, deny one another. They gave parity to women at a time when women were looked at as um, chattels, as possessions, and mm-hmm. uh, that men men had all the privileges and women had nothing to do except say, you know, whatever you want. 
But here, in, you, you see in the Bible, uh, in early Christian days, it, it just overturned all of that and said there's mutuality in your marriage, that the the wife had as many sexual rights as the husband did, and that neither one was meant to be have more uh, say over your own body than, than your spouse, um, that the wife had as much right as the husband did. So it's also... It's teaching is uh, well, Tim. You you can probably speak more to Kyle Harper because you've read the book and I haven't. But uh, it was so unique at its time that women, particularly, flocked to Christianity because it it was um, revolutionary. Well, yeah. you know, the the one of the things you talk about is sex in, in the in the book and how you know, the contemporary view on marriage and sex is that it's okay to have sex outside of marriage and the orthodox view is that you don't but obviously you know the great percentage of couples are having sex outside of marriage but this how how much effect did having does this having sex out of marriage actually affect um the marriage rate tim oh a lot <laughs> and and let's i think we can be very candid about this um in particular it makes it uh a lot of men are a lot less interested in marriage because 50 years ago it was very difficult to have a sexual relationship if you weren't married it was harder mm-hmm. way 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 harder and partly as a result of that i mean that's not that's not a sufficient reason to get married uh, it's just, hey, I want to have sex. Right, right. On the other hand, um, what this does is it really takes away one of the many incentives. And in an age of individualism, men especially need all the incentive they can get. But this is a major, a major incentive that's been taken away. You can edit this out if you want, but as my mother said, why buy the cow if the milk is free? Well, yeah, I heard that one too. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 it is, but it, but it, it makes, it makes. And this is what the women's movement said. It makes women less powerful um, if they can't be as sexually free as men. Exactly. And let me, uh, Kathy made a reference to a book by Kyle Harper. He's a uh, classics professor uh, who wrote a book called uh, From Shame to Sin. And it's about how Christianity changed the sex uh, ethic of the old Roman world. And in in that world, if you were married, the woman was not allowed to have sex with anybody, but the man, it was expected the man could have sex with prostitutes. He would, the husband would have sex with prostitutes. He could have sex with servants. He could have sex with anybody. Mm-hmm. That was, that was, the, it was a, it was a, a big double standard. Christianity came along and said, you know what? what uh, the only thing that is going to not privilege men is a sex ethic in which you can't have sex unless you're married. You both have to give yourselves to each other wholly, and there's no double standard. Super yeah. consensual. I, I, know, I know there are many men who live by that old standard as well now. Sure, sure. But I see what, what that did was, Kathy was right, um, women, of course, that was extraordinarily uh, you know, popular back then because it leveled the playing field. Mm-hmm. I would say the, level, the playing field is not leveled even today. Uh, with the kind of with the sexual revolution, it's it still seems to me that only when you say uh, you cannot have sex outside of marriage, and both people have got to, without a double standard, give themselves to each other, your whole life to each other, and you can only have sex inside a lifelong covenant, 
that is the only way I think you level the playing field. Now, of course, there can be abuse in, even inside marriage, but I do think that gets rid of the sense that a lot of women feel today, and that is that they're being exploited. Is there is there a perfect person for everyone? That's the first part of this question. And the second part is, should everyone be married? Um, well, either what, either Tim or Kathy, you can answer that one. Oh, oh, I'll tell you what, I'll do. I'll take the first one. Okay. Because okay. I want the first one is: Does everybody have the the one right person? Right. Um, Kathy and I. We love each other. We have a better marriage than we deserve. Sometimes we pinch ourselves with how good our marriage is, but neither of us is the perfect person for the other one because there isn't such a thing. And now Kathy can speak to whether everybody should be married. Well, when you, I'll peg on to your comment first, although, Tim. When you have two sinners marrying each other, how are you going to get perfection out of that? There's nobody else to marry except another sinner. And therefore, no marriage is going to be the perfect marriage, uh, even if you find a person who is practically your clone as far as all of your thoughts and your um, commitments and your your advantages, everything that you like and dislike, are they're identical to you. But the second one, the second part of the question um, was... <laughs> should, should everybody be married? I mean, I mean is, married? It, is it no, necessary to not. be your sort of your completeness no, as a spiritual person to be married? The only perfect person in the world was Jesus, and he wasn't married. Um, he is waiting for his bride, and that's us. When we meet in heaven, we are going to have the wedding supper of the Lamb with Jesus as the bridegroom. But here on earth, we're in the same position as Jesus in heaven, as many of us are going to be faithfully chaste until we are in the arms of our Savior. And um, there's nothing second-class or second-rate about that. There are many advantages to being single. Paul enumerated them. He said he wished everybody was single like he was because you could be absorbed with the things that had to do with the Lord. I mean, I once addressed a bunch of college students in Philadelphia and said, you know, when you're single, you can do so many things for God. You're like a little zippy sports car. You can go, turn here, turn on a dime, do a U-turn, you know, go on the mission field, you know, take off. Yeah. To you. So when you have a family, you're like an 18-wheeler that takes three blocks to make a left <laughs> turn to just get out of the house to go to to McDonald's, you know, where's the diaper bag and where is everyone strapped in the car seat. It's like, you know, the invasion of Normandy. So there are many advantages to being single. And Christian uh, men and women who are single and have offered their chastity to God are, I think, um, in some ways, going to be leaders in the Christian community because they're not absorbed with the same idols. I spoke to a man named Sam Albury, and he said, you know, if if you think God's asking too much of me to be chaste and, you know, single, then you have no idea what God's asking you because it's not like he has one standard for some people and, you know, you married people, well, maybe, you know, you'll be a little more generous than the average person, but... He's asking all of us to lay down our lives, and that looks differently for everyone. And for some people, that may be lifelong singleness. Okay, but, but does it does it violate the the the, the uh, God's you know rule in Genesis? Be fruitful and multiply. I mean, someone will go back there and say, well, you can't if you're supposed to have um, children only in marriage or have sex only in marriage, and you're not married. Does it violate that sort of directive? doesn't violate it so much as it is a result of the brokenness that happened 
after God made men and women and gave them that creation mandate that you just quoted to be fruitful, multiply, bring out the all the capacities that the world had, um, the brokenness of sin has meant that there are many things that aren't the way they are meant to be. And I, I alluded to it, eventually we'll all be married. And the biggest danger of being married in this world is that you will privilege this earthly marriage and not really give the time and the, the thought and the adoration to Jesus, who is our true bridegroom. John Newton said that. He said the biggest danger of a happy marriage is idolatry that you get comfortable with the person that is with you here and you sort of put on the back burner, Jesus, your true spouse, whereas a single person who gets pretty tired of hearing like, well, Jesus is your spouse. But nevertheless, they have the the capacity to really focus on that and, uh, and to make that a, a more present reality than some of us who are married let our thoughts... Mm-hmm. Uh, wander away from who our true spouse is. Well, I, I just want to thank you both, Tim and Kathy Keller. The books, uh, they're called How to Find God series. Are there more books coming in this series, or do you think you've hit the, the, the basic ones and you don't need to go here anymore? Uh, not not in this series, no. On the other hand, um, I'm pretty. we're pr- pretty interested in maybe doing other short books like this again in the future, maybe for skeptics, for example. Yeah. Uh, so we, we like the format, and so I'm saying... We probably might do other books like that, but not in this series, no. Well, they're very handy books. It's uh, on birth, on marriage, on death. Uh, Tim and Kathy Keller, I want to thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. And thank you for having us, Lauren. You're welcome. And thank you all for listening. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.